Greetings from near and far. I was just thinking, as I frequently do, that despite our stressed circumstances, we are able to, from our own homes, be together in this remarkable way. I think it's amazing. I think it's really fantastic. We're going to study Torah for the next hour. This week's portion is called Mishpatim. I'll describe it to you, and then I'm going to focus in on just one section of it, of course. And uh, let's say the blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging in words of Torah. I hope you're all doing okay. In between getting the rest of my things done, I've been um, glued to my TV watching uh, the impeachment proceedings. So I just wanted to say that out loud. They're going on now. I thought some of you might be there instead of here, but uh, I think I got, I, th I don't, I got so much yesterday. It was so, so um, extraordinarily uh, gripping that I didn't need to watch as much today. But uh, my goodness, what a drama. Okay, so this Torah portion is called Mishpatim, which means laws. And um, it comes right after the Ten Commandments, last week's portion. It says at the end of the portion of the Ten Commandments, at the end of Yitro, it says, just one second. Oh, sorry. There we go. Moses, the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So after everyone hearing the, the headlines, which are the Ten Commandments, Moses enters that thick cloud, which we could spend a lot of time imagining what that experience is, and receives in detail uh, the next portion and thereafter the next several portions, which are very specific instructions for how to build a society based on law, not based on whim, on divine, on, on a royal fiat or even divine fiat, but rather on moral law. And so Mishpatim is a very detailed portion. Um, some of its laws resonate with us immediately um, across the millennium. Uh, others clearly come from a time and place where there were different, uh, with a different 
social structure and a different communal structure. Um, and we need to understand those laws and read them and decide, think about how are we going, what is, what, what's the impulse behind this law? And uh, um, does it pertain still, for example? And uh, one of the tendencies that we have when we're reading an ancient, this ancient text, excuse me, something in my throat. Um, when we read this ancient text is to immediately project our society's values and our current understanding of what's considered just onto that and say, and believe me, I've heard this a lot of times over the years, how could they do that, right? So get that out of your system uh, because it's pretty much a pointless, it's a good emotional reaction, but it's not useful in terms of then you either love the text or you hate the text, to accept it or reject it. And um, uh, we can be much more um, uh, nuanced and sophisticated than that as we approach this Parsha, which is all a preface to say that I wanted to take on the very beginning of the Parsha, which is about slavery and look at it in context with you. And some of you have studied from this angle before, but it came up a couple of times this week and I thought we would go right at it. So I'll go right to the text, I'll share the screen and we'll read a bit and then we'll talk about it, okay? Hmm. Oh, that's weird. Hold on. Let's see. I'm having a oh, basic advanced. Wow, files. Okay, I've never seen this before. Hang on, I can find it. Go to Safaria, Ellen. Yep. yep. And Mishpatim, because I can't share my screen because of some weirdness. Hang on. Parsha. Uh, Mishpatim one. Isn't that strange? Share screen. Got it? Well done. Okay. Okay. Can you make it a little bigger? Uh, Is there a way? Can you just do it with your finger? Can you, can you? Uh... I'm on the desktop. And what did Jonah did? That doesn't work. I don't see. Let's save. That's language. No. Okay. Sorry. Well, that's all right. Here we are. Okay. Um, let me. Uh, that's too little. Is that little, everybody? On my screen, it's very small. Okay, I'll, I'll just uh, read it to you. These are the rules that you shall set before them. Mishpatim means rules or laws. And this is God speaking to Moses. And the very first rule is, 
when you acquire a Hebrew slave, Eved Ivri, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without payment. If he came single, he shall leave single. If he had a wife, his wife shall leave with him. If his master gave him a wife and he has borne him children, the wife and her children shall belong to the master and he shall leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free. Scroll down for me, Ellen. Uh, um, in his master shall take him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall then remain his slave for life. Um, okay, let's just stop there. You can end the screen sharing, Ellen. So we can see each other. No, I still can't screen share. How strange. Um, that's never happened to me before. Okay. Just when I was getting good at it. Um, so here are the children of Israel having just left slavery and they are about to receive laws about what to do about having slaves. And the reaction over and over from us is, what? Isn't slavery bad? How can the Torah still have slavery? So I wanna address that question first. It seems to me from my limited understanding that in ancient Israel and in the ancient Near East, slavery was a simply accepted institution all over the entire Mediterranean, right? And um, um, it was an economic institution. In ancient Israel, if you did not own land, if you, were, if you, if you did not have a, 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 a land holding which you could farm, uh, you did not have a um, stable source of income or food. And so many people had to work as day laborers uh, if it was also a patriarchal society, which means that each landholding was led by a patriarch, a leader of the clan, of that family, whose job it was to protect and take care of all the members of their household. If you were not a member of a household with a protector by being an orphan or a widow or a stranger, you had no legal protection. You had, you, you were in a, an incredibly liminal, difficult place. That's partly why so many of the laws of the Torah insist that you have to care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger because you are not legally obligated to do so if they were not part of your household. 
And so there are laws in the Torah that say you have to leave the corners of their fields. You have to give them part of your tithe. You have to, uh, you can't take their garments if they owe you money. You can't sue them for interest. Um, on and on and on. All these protections for the unprotected, which is one of the, um, for me, pr most progressive aspects of the Torah in legislating for the social system of its time. In that social system of its time, it was often advantageous to become an indentured servant. It guaranteed you a home and, and a protector. And so slavery was an economic institution that um, was a given in the ancient Near East. Now, because the Israelites had understood themselves as having been enslaved by Pharaoh, they set up a system where if you were a Hebrew slave, if you were an Israelite and you had to indenture yourself to another, another uh, because of debt or all kinds of possibilities, first of all, it wasn't a permanent status unless you chose it. Right? So after six years, you had the opportunity to be released. Right? As usual, as we'll see in another text in here, the seventh year is always the year of release. The Sabbath is the seventh day. The seventh year is a sabbatical year. Uh, and there are laws elsewhere in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, that say, and when you're slave goes free, you have to furnish them from your household so that they don't go away empty-handed, right? They've not, so there are all of these laws that indicate the humanity of the, um, of, of the servant and the requirement to treat them as a fellow human being. Um, in um, a, a little bit later in this Parsha, it says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your ass may rest and that your home-born slave and the stranger may be refreshed. So even though these people have no rights in the way we would understand rights because they are under your jurisdiction, the head of this household, you are required to give them a day off. That's in the 10 commandments also, keep the Sabbath so that you and your sons and daughters and your slaves and the stranger in your midst and your animals may rest. So there's this understanding that even though slavery is an abiding institution. It's an institution where you cannot rule over your slaves the way Pharaoh ruled over you. And that's why it says over and over, you know the feelings of the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, so therefore do not oppress the stranger. So apparently there is no stigma to being a slave in this society. Because if after six years, let's say 
in that household, your master gave you a wife and you have children and you don't want to leave them. You, you make a public declaration. It said, um, his, if the slave declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free. And most uh, the, of the scholars I was reading think this is actually a public legal declaration, right? That this is a public ceremony because it says his master shall take him before God. But the Hebrew says, Adonai el ha Elohim. And it says ha Elohim, not el. And so what is, so Elohim, which we know is the name of God in Hebrew. When you say ha Elohim, Eloha, Eloha in Hebrew is also a judge. Uh, so it might mean you bring him before the magistrates. And there's a formal ceremony where you pierce the ear of the servant who then becomes a permanent member of your household. Um, and again, you might choose to do that because um, you love your wife and children and in the social system of that time, that means you have to stay where you are. Or it could mean that you like the security since you are never going, this is not a capitalist society where some people have the opportunity to climb the ladder. This is an agrarian, hereditary, land-based society. And, uh, you know, this is, could be a good place for you to become part of the household because the slave was considered part of the household and had protections and could be loyal to their master. Um, but there are all kinds of conditions about how the master must treat the slave. So again, I'm describing this to you because it's actually, in my opinion, extremely progressive for its moment and time. And we can take, as we, we can take the, um, intention behind it and consider how we might apply it in a day and time when we've understood even the institution of slavery to be a, a, a completely in, unjust way of organizing humanity, right? Uh, um, okay, so I wanna read a little more and I have no idea once again why I can't share my screen, but I'm not gonna do that in the present. So now it says, now it's gonna, now it's gonna pull our, push our buttons again, because it says in verse seven, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not be freed as male slaves are. Zoom in, yeah, a little more. Thank you, and now, uh, Click that okay so we get the cookies uh, message out of the way. Thank you so much. Okay, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not be freed as male slaves are. If she proves to be displeasing to her master who designated her for himself, he must let her be redeemed 
he shall not have the right to sell her to outsiders since he broke faith with her. And if he designated for her for his son, he shall deal with her as is the practice with free maidens. And if he marries another, he must not withhold from this one her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he fails her in these three ways, she shall go free without payment. Okay, we'll pause there. So we're reading Torah and it is a, a strictly patriarchal society which means that women are subservient to men and are essentially, just like the indentured servant, are the property of their husband. But what the Torah does is that it actually changes the equation. They may be the legal property of their owner or patriarch, but they have rights as a being, human being created in the image of God. And this is the underlying principle of the Torah in the same way that all men are created equal is the underlying principle of our founding documents in the United States. It says men, it says men here. Ah. David makes a good point. The translation that I'm reading uses the word servant, not slave. Is there anything in Hebrew that indicates a difference? The answer is the word for servant and the word for slave is evid, and there is no difference. So being a, we, are, we are servants of God, and so English translations can't really, don't, there is no distinction in Hebrew. The word evid means you are in service to someone. The question is how your master treats you. And there is no distinction in Hebrew between the word servant and slave. It's always the word evid. Pharaoh treats his servants as subhuman. He treats them with cruelty. He treats them without regard for their feelings or their well-being. That is what is forbidden in the Torah. A, a master in the Torah cannot treat his servants that way. Um, so I hope that helps, helps David. And it's a really important point that the word for slave and the word for servant are the same word in Hebrew. And when we, when, um, when the Torah uses the term in terms of religious service, religious worship, we're serving God. Um, there is a distinction in the Torah between an Evid Ivri, a Hebrew Evid, and just an Evid, which could be someone from another uh, uh, people who were captured in war. Um, uh, or other possibilities, they don't have all the rights of Hebrew slaves. Another thing that rubs modern readers the wrong way. Nonetheless, the same fundamental human treatment, in other words, there's, if, if, if in wartime in the Torah, um, uh, captives 
are brought, brought back. They become permanent slaves. The six-year rule doesn't apply to them. So no, it's not equal, it's tiered. However, the rules about Sabbath, about mistreatment, about cruelty, they still apply even to the non-homeborn slave. So once again, we're dealing with the hierarchy. Uh, Enid says, Roman slaves had rights also. American law was unique in classifying them as property. Enid, I don't know enough about it. I was reading um, Aristotle's ha has a controversial famous position saying that some people are naturally slaves because of their abilities and others are naturally masters. And I know that Aristotle's positions on this were adopted by American slaveholders, obviously, as justification. Um, can you unmute yourself and say more about the rights of slaves under Roman law? I, um, try, I'm remembering what I learned in law school, which was a little while ago, but, but the civil code, which starts with Aristotle and goes through the Roman laws, had always had a, a, a provision that slaves, although they were a lesser category, but they were human. And St. Paul, if you remember, you know, went, went into the forum and demanded his rights. He had that ability. Anglo-Saxon law, the, the English law, um, had no provision for it because there weren't slaves in, in uh, England initially. And so when they began to formulate rules regarding slaves, they used property law rather than civil liberties. And so that's why American slaves were always treated as property. Obviously, individually, people may have been nice to them or not nice to them, but, but they were classified as property. Mm, thank you. was not true. Understood. Good, I have a lot to learn. Um, uh, let's see, let me read Meg's comment and Roni's. Uh, Meg said, so homeborn means born a Jew in that place, not born into a particular family. I think I misspoke, Meg. No, I think homeborn means born into a particular family. What I meant was an Ebed Ivri, a Hebrew slave, is a different category in the Torah than a uh, foreign-born slave. And the Hebrew slave, because they're part of the covenant that they just entered at Mount Sinai, who understand themselves as having left slavery, cannot against their own will be held permanently in servitude uh, by another Hebrew. Um, and Roni says, could you date this writing and explain why it is so instructional and rational rather than inspirational and spiritual? That's a great, great question, Roni. The Torah is both instructional and rational and inspirational and spiritual at the same time. It alternates. Uh, the Torah also alternates between narrative where it tells a story and then sections that are utterly legal, legalistic and filled with rules and behaviors. So I think one of the best ways to describe it, um, um, and uh, Rabbi Ellen sent me, um, Rabbi Brent Spodek's um, comments about this Parsha, which, uh, which I'm reflecting on, uh, is that here we have this, um, utterly transcendent 
overwhelming experience of hearing God speak. And then in the very next chapter, we get into the details of property, civil, and case law, which is what this whole portion is. And I think it would be like, okay, we're free, we're inspired, we're connected to the divine. Now, how do we run our affairs? You can't run, it, it was great being up on the mountaintop, but now we have to figure out how to construct our society. And so there's no contradiction in the Torah between divine inspiration and then divine instruction for how to, um, how to, how to, okay, everyone is made in the image of God. Um, how are we going to apply this to a society? We have to build a society where, where, where people are treated with justly and, and, with, and with justice. So for me, there's no contradiction between the grand epiphany and then having to come back and figure out how to um, distribute the wealth, for example, or make sure nobody gets crushed by someone's cruelty. Or, and so for me, that's where these laws um, uh, come in. They're the fine print on the um, covenant, as it were. Uh, um, I hope that's a little bit helpful. Oh, lawyers joke that these are the regulations. Yes, indeed. So I wanted to talk about the fact that female slaves, servants of Adim, Amot, uh, they're called, have even fewer, uh, uh, less power than male slaves. And yet that's the way it was, right? That's how patriarchy worked. Um, So what the Torah does and what Jewish law then reinforces and expands over the centuries is it makes certain that women who have no power over their own um, destinies in this society are protected. They can't, uh, someone can't take a wife, purchase a wife as, a, as, a, as an, um, you know, a concubine, as a member of the household and then discard her, cannot, can't do it. Not only that, the husband or the master has a responsibility for, if you saw, food, clothing, and conjugal rights. <coughs> um, if he took her, and if not, has to liberate her with her bride price <coughs> so that she can be released. Um, and uh, uh, free to go. In, um, as Jewish law develops, this becomes the foundation of the rabbinic creation called the ketubah. The ketubah is the legal marriage document in Jewish weddings. And a traditional ketubah states that the husband, the, the the bride is bringing a dowry of X amount and the husband promises to love, to give food, shelter, conjugal rights um, uh, to his wife. 
if he does not do this, it's in writing, it's in a contract called the ketubah. The ketubah at the wedding gets handed to the woman. She keeps it because it's the only protection she has if she's abused or, or, or ignored or mistreated. Um, so now I want to just sort of, so, so expressing how uh, male and female slaves in the context of their social status um, have to be treated in the Bible is in direct contrast to the story. And this is where story, inspiration, and leg legality comes in. Here are, here are the rules you have to follow that we want to learn from the story we just heard, where someone with absolute power, oh, thank you, I'll call you in a moment, Meg, someone with absolute power, Pharaoh, treats those who are under his authority as less than human. Here, and the structure of the society has not now become um, without its social strata. But all of these rules are instituted to make sure that those at the bottom of the social ladder have fundamental, fundamental protection. This is revolutionary. That's how I see the Torah. And I see it as revolutionary also in that it's contextualized that this is the divine desire, the divine will that all humans, well, it's not truly egalitarian, Paul, because it, but it's fun, it, it, it protects the fundamental humanity of everyone regardless of status. Meg, what did you want to share? No, my hand was still up from before, sorry. Oh, okay. No, I did, I am actually curious as to exactly what or where is written what conjugal rights constitute. Is that specified any place? Thank you for asking. <clears throat> and who decides? Is it he said, she said, if there's a claim that they, all those conditions were not met? It's even, it's even foggier than that, Meg, because the word food, clothing, and conjugal rights, no one knows exactly what onata means. Oh. The consensus is conjugal right, but other commentators say, no, it means, um, it means shelter, it means this, it means that. What it comes to mean in Jewish um, practice much later than this. So we don't know what that word onata actually means, but what it comes to mean in Jewish rabbinic halacha is conjugal rights, meaning when it's described, it, meaning coming up towards the present that the husband has a responsibility to give his wife pleasure, sexual pleasure. That's not what the text necessarily says here, but that's what it comes to mean in, um, in, in, in Jewish law. Now I wanna take a little, um, I wanna step back from this a little bit to share with you that, um, so now the question is what do we do with this in the present? 
right? So here we are in a world it, with a worldview that I would say most of us probably share that uh, certainly rejects servitude, indentured servitude as a social status. Slavery was finally outlawed in the United States 160 years ago. Um, uh, and certainly, I would say, rejects patriarchy as a social structure where women must be subject to the men in their lives. Right? Now, there are plenty of other elements in our society which want to maintain uh, patriarchy. Um, so do what's there to do with all these laws? You know, um, uh, and I wanted to say that uh, one of the reasons I became a reconstructionist rabbi is because the, the, the approach of reconstructionism and the fundamental framework of reconstructionism is that Judaism evolves um, just like all societies evolve based on, and, and, and we need to, and Jewish, Jewish, Jewish laws have to evolve with it um, in order to reflect the expanding and emerging um, understandings of what it means that every human being is made in the image of God. Uh, and so one of the pleasures of that, one of the pleasure, pleasure is the word I meant, one of the, one of the sad, um, one of the reasons that works for me is that I don't have to apologize about the Torah. I can try to understand it. I can try to see what the seed of uh, wisdom in it is that I want to carry into my time. But I can also say that because it's, a, because it's evolving, that implies that it's also a human creation. And because it's a human creation, I don't have to um, maintain uh, social caste systems or power structures that I don't think are optimal for humanity at this time. And so I both don't have to apologize for the Torah, for being a 3000 year old document, nor do I have to slavishly accept it. And uh, that frees me up to say, what does this text have to teach me now? Um, I'm not interested in um, perpetuating a, a social structure where women are subservient to men. And I'm certainly not interested in perpetuating um, a social structure where uh, some people are uh, indentured to others in servitude. And so what I try to do by studying this is look, as I said, for the fundamental principles that the Torah is applying in that time and place. Um, and uh, for example, I'm gonna give you some more examples. Um, We don't have to share the screen. 
When a person who is a slave owner strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, that person shall let the slave go free on account of the eye. If the owner knocks out the tooth of a slave, male or female, that person shall let the slave go free on account of the tooth, right? The Torah is being so clear here about the human status of the people in our, who are under our control or under our power. Let me read you another one. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, you shall not turn over to the master a slave who seeks refuge with you from that master. The assumption being that why are they running away? They must be being mistreated. There's no other reason in that society Let's see, someone's waving their hand. Hi, why doesn't the Torah just say, don't hit your slave? Are there rules about how to treat oh. physical? Oh yeah, well, that's what I was reading before. When oh. it says, if you knock out your slave's tooth or eye, you have to let them go free. You've right, but why, why doesn't it just say, don't, you shouldn't be hitting your slave? Why? Get I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Um, uh, so, but it's clear from that one that this one that you shall not turn over to the master, a slave who seeks refuge with you from this master. This is a profoundly humane commandment. Such individuals shall live with you in any place they may choose among the settlements in your midst, wherever they please and you must not ill-treat Ill them. Um, let's see, David Kagan says, one could see why Mishpatim begins the listing of detailed laws with the laws of protection for slaves as a counterpoint to the larger narrative of Israel having just gained their freedom from slavery. I agree with David because the Torah is a literary structure, a carefully wrought one. So if, on the other side of Mount Sinai, we are just now, here's the peak of crossing the Red Sea and then coming to Mount Sinai and hearing God speak. And on one side of that narrative peak is the ordeal of being crushed by slavery under Pharaoh. So right on the other side of that, in a literary structure for me, I totally agree with David, that it's natural that the Torah would now address uh, how you're supposed to treat those people who are in servitude to you. Um, Paul says, easier for one to be able to adapt from Torah than say constitution. Um, it depends, uh, Paul, if you're part of a Jewish community that considers itself halachic, that is, for those who don't know what that term is, halacha, that considers itself beholden and subject to Jewish law, then you can only change Jewish law from within. And you have to find justifications in precedent, in precedences in the uh, precedents in the Torah in order to adapt and change. 
a, a very a very classic example of that right now for many years many years has been the fact that in traditional Jewish law women cannot initiate a divorce and that's why they were given the ketubah but the problem with that is that if they can't initiate a divorce a cruel or deadbeat husband can ignore them and so all kinds of laws were developed over the and practices over the ages for public shaming for shunning for all the things you can do to try to get the husband to issue the divorce papers um, but that's still working in within the system of patriarchy and so that for me is, is one of the reasons why i didn't become a conservative rabbi because conservative judaism with all the integrity it can muster tries to adapt the torah without rejecting outright Jewish law when I might feel it's time to reject some aspect of Jewish law. And that's part of what I wanted to share with you today is that, um, so having declared myself, um, uh, what's the word to, in, um, invested in, uh, informed by, my my past, I do not consider myself to be absolutely beholden to it. You know, I just got this book, um, brand new book. It's called. It's a children's book. It's by it's by Sandy Rabbi Sandy Sasso. It's called Judy Led the Way. It I it just came out. Judith Eisenstein was a member of our congregation, but she was also the daughter of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan. And in 1921, right after the 19th Amendment was uh, ratified, he decided he needed to give his daughters a bat mitzvah because he said if they have if they have the vote in America, they should have the vote in Judaism. And so that was the approach uh, Kaplan took, which I inherited as I studied under his students, which is that, um, as he liked to say, tradition has a vote, but not a veto. Um, and uh, uh, whereas the constitution is more complicated because we are living under its authority as Americans. And so it is harder to change the constitution. We as modern liberal Jews are not living under the authority of the Torah. We are living under the influence and inspiration of the Torah. That makes for a much vaguer sense of how to proceed as Jews. It's not a slam dunk, it's a mixed blessing. Uh, and then Paul says, then what is it to be Jewish? And that's the question that Kaplan answered. He said, in the modern era, being Jewish is being part of the Jewish people. And so belonging to the Jewish people is the core experience of being Jewish. Within that, so he, he, he gave us a new definition of peoplehood rather than living under a legal um, construction as a way to keep binding us together with his historical sense of being called to a relationship together with God. 
but not legally bound by previous strictures. Um, hold on, let me read a couple more comments. There's something about the specificity of the instruction that makes one think much more meaningful than just a do not. Well, that would be a response to what Judith uh, Sokoloff was saying. And Enid said, they were not prohibiting all punishment and discipline. No, they were not. Um, the word they use is befarech. Befarech means crushing or cruel. And Pharaoh's treatment of the Hebrew slaves is called befarech. And it says, you shall not rule over your slaves, befarech, it says in this Parsha. Um, actually not in this Parsha, but in Leviticus. Um, so then we get into this perennial question of what it means to be Jewish. What about to become a nation of priests? How, what do we do with that? And guess what? I don't have the answer. That is the um, price of choosing modernity, right? The price of choosing modernity is choosing fuzzy boundaries. You know, loose boundaries are not uh, for everybody. That's why so many people turn to traditional practice, to orthodoxy, to fundamentalism. It's like modernity has real problems, but I'm all in anyway. Uh, um, I'm in with the experiment of, of modernity, even though I know that it's not, a, it's not a, um, the solution to all our human problems. Uh, so that's why I embrace this approach to Judaism. I don't think, uh, I think times have changed. I think our understanding of humanity has changed. Uh, I like the experiment that I, I like, I like um, living in a society where all men and women and everyone gets to, um, regardless of, of what they're, go through the whole list of gender, sexual identity, all that stuff um, are restricted in ways that others are not because of their, because of theirs is eliminated. And we get to have a great experiment to see what kind of society emerges when everyone uh, has, the has, has the equal opportunity for pursuing their goals. Um, let's see. Okay, there's a, uh, an article in the Times that Gary put in today. Is that the piece about uh, we're, we're in trouble if we follow California's progressive. Um, yeah, listen, I'm, um, I'm in favor of families, for example. I'm in favor of family values. I just don't think we should define what a family is, right? I am conservative with a small c. I mean, I'm a clergyman for goodness sake, conservative in my belief that people should be kind and care for each other, that they should put their own egos aside for a greater good of loving relationships, community and family. I'm conservative, uh, but I'm progressive in that I don't wanna dictate to people who they should love or how they, uh, you understand? It's like, 
I don't fit into a nice slot as either a libertine progressive or as a socially restrictive conservative. We're all mixtures of that, everybody. And I refuse to be put into the black and white um, uh, dichotomy of you're either this or that. So um, the culture wars are not for me. Um, I'm, I'm not raising a banner. Boy, I'm squeezing a lot of um, dense stuff into like little sentences. Um, okay. Uh, Paul Bloom says in modernity, I think you can still be observant and progressive. I agree with you, Paul. I'm observant. Um, I follow a lot of mitzvahs. I have organized my life around following mitzvahs. Um, the question is, which mitzvahs does a community decide to focus on? And as you're well aware, fund many fundamentalist communities uh, focus on mitzvahs that are um, didactic and uh, that are about rules of behavior, uh, of so, uh, you know, um, restrictions on behavior. Whereas progressive Jewish communities might, might, we might benefit from focusing more on those strictures to some degree, but I'm focused on a lot of other uh, commandments about how we're supposed to treat one another. Uh, there's a lot of it, what our business ethics are, how we're supposed to worship God. I mean, so did the Jewish people accept these rules 3000 years ago or did they rebel? Well, if you read the Torah, they, they accepted them and then they continuously rebelled against them. Because in the Torah, which is not history, but a sacred story, the children of Israel are the object lessons in flawed humanity. Uh, and um, uh, as soon as they accept these commandments, which they do, they're um, uh, complaining about them. And I think what we are doing, processing Torah and turning it around is the Jewish process. So I like the idea of being part of the Jewish process. That's what I'm trying to communicate in a fairly clumsy way today, I think. Um, that here are these ancient laws about slavery and what does it mean to be engaged in this process of figuring out what it means in Genesis when it says all humans are made in the image of God and then come across this passage in Torah which says um, that you can have slaves. Um, it takes all kinds of Jews to make the world go round as long as you are positive and choose life. Go Paul. A number of Buddhist, Sufi, and even Hindu teachers are people who are born Jews. I wonder what Torah would say about that. Torah doesn't have anything to say about that, Susan, in terms of this written text. Couldn't have imagined it. And that's part of what happens. There are so many things in our world that the Torah couldn't have imagined. That's why I choose this, this uh, evolving approach to Judaism. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, when we say, what would Torah say about that? We have to mediate it through our study of Torah and our sense of what would Torah say about, here's, so if you're a halachic Jew, if you're a, uh, someone who practices and carefully follows Jewish law as the fundamental framework for your life, then you're asking yourself, 
what is a baby Jewish if it's a donated egg and sperm that's implanted in a Jewish mother's womb? It's like, I cannot tell you. Is genetic, uh, that there are so many questions that the Torah would, what would the Torah say about that? And so whether you're a traditional, you're, you're more, uh, whether your Judaism is more based on Jewish law or more based for me on, on Jewish um, principles, I would say, we're after, if we wanna continue to have a vibrant Jewish culture, we have to ask these questions all the time. We have to wrestle with them. Um, it's, for those who enjoy doing that, and I do, uh, what a fascinating question. My rabbinical association spent a long time as it grapples with the new kinds of ways that people make babies about how you decide if a baby's Jewish. You can be very instrumental and say, well, it's a Jewish mother, it's Jewish, right? That's the halachic way. What's a Jewish mother? What if the egg came from a, what, how? We need new categories. So for me, it's much more valuable to um, try to understand what the Torah is, what's underpinning the Torah, the thrust of the Torah's laws, than it is to try to take this, this really ancient social structure that's extremely different from what I live in now and try to superimpose it on uh, the problems that the Torah, in, that are the composers of the Torah in, in 600 BCE could never have imagined. Um, Cynthia says, thanks to Rabbi Jonathan for fascinating teachings, Rabbi Elm for hosting, to all for insights and camaraderie, have to go back to secular work. At least you don't have to drive back to the office, Cynthia, thank you. And Paul says, if Torah is a roadmap to becoming a tzaddik, then ultimately being a Buddhist would be problematic. But today we live in a different world of kindred spirits. Thank you, Paul. All right. Um, so sometimes, as you know, I teach Torah from a uh, internal spiritual perspective. Sometimes I like to teach from a historical evolutionary perspective. And that's just what I decided to do today. And I guess what I was hoping a takeaway from this from you is, if you're ever just reading Torah on your own and you say, what? Um, you don't have to then reject the text. You can use your, your um, historical, sociological, spiritual, um, all the ways your good brain works to say, hmm, that's problematic. I wonder what our, what our tradition over 3000 years has done with that statement. And then we can have some fun studying Torah. Um, and I think that's part of what I wanted to try to communicate today.